Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia. We're excited to be joined today by Dr. Javier Augero, professor of Latin American sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, where he also founded the Urban Ethnography Lab. Through a couple decades as a political ethnographer, he's focused on urban marginality, collective violence, contentious politics, and environmental suffering, with most of his research in marginalized neighborhoods in Buenos Aires. His publications are far too many to name, but among my personal favorites are the books Poor People's Politics, Patients of the State, and most recently, The Ambivalent State, Police Criminal Collusion at the Urban Margins, which he co-authored with Catherine Sobring. Uh, Most importantly, and Javier, I noticed that this hasn't yet made it onto your faculty page, but this is an area you can correct once we finish recording, he's on the advisory board of Ethnographic Marginalia. Uh, Javier, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sneha. Thanks, Alex, uh, for having me here. It's so good to do the show with you, and we're very excited for this conversation. I'm excited too. Awesome. So, you know, let's just jump right into it. And um, the first question that we thought we would ask you is something uh, that Alex was actually telling me about, that you started out studying law, right? So we were curious to know how you became a sociologist and... uh, what drew you to ethnography in particular? You know, I never, I don't, I don't think I ever told uh, uh, that story. Uh, I, <laughs> I, um, as a young seventeen-year-old uh, in in Argentina, uh, as many other uh, kids, also still in Latin America and in Europe, you have to choose a degree. You don't have the that ex- experience of, of college in which you can jump from one subject to the next and then decide on what you're going to major in. You have your finishing high school and you have to uh, choose your future. Um, um, and my dad was a lawyer. He was also a, a politician. And so I said, well, I'm going to go in for law. Uh, three years uh, later, uh, and many memorizations of codes and uh, Roman law, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that bored me to death. I, I thought it was it, it was time to quit. But 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 the explanation is uh, is a relational one. I was also uh, by then in my second year uh, in law school. I was also an activist uh, doing. Uh, work in in poor neighborhoods, teaching uh, kids uh, literacy uh, classes, trying to organize soup kitchens, the kind of things that activists, grassroots level activists uh, still do. Um, And I met uh, two two young sociologists. Uh, I had no clue. I I, I really had no idea what sociology uh, was. But... um, I found them fascinating uh, characters. Uh, and I, as an impressionable 18, 19 year old, wanted to be like them, wanted to, you know, listen to the music they were listening, dressed like them, 
uh, I, I, I have no shame in, in saying this. It wasn't an intellectual uh, uh, choice uh, back then. It was more what you would call now a lifestyle, if you will. You know, the beard, the, <laughs> the, uh, the kind of, again, the kind of clothes, music, books. Uh, I spent three years, uh, two or three years reading uh, uh, law, and I was, uh, I was really not very well versed in literature or social sciences, and I had a lot of catching up to do. So um, it, it is a much more sort of complicated uh, story, but I went back. I started zero again. Now I was a little bit older, uh, and I started sociology at the University of Buenos Aires. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, and uh, how did ethnography happen to you? Uh, as you just said, ethnography ethnography happened uh, <laughs> yeah. to me because I wasn't, uh, you know, in my work as a as an activist, I would spend a lot of time in these uh, neighborhoods. But also it was a it was a friendship thing. I would go with friends. We would you know play music, organize things, do you know uh, movie nights uh, in the neighborhood. This was a time when democracy was you know coming back to Argentina. There was like our spring, uh, our democratic spring, so to speak. And so there was a flurry of of activity. It was fun to be uh, in. Uh, in politics, so uh, and uh, but then I was doing my you know sociology studies. I was reading my Marx, Weber, Durkheim, etc., etc., etc. By year three or four, uh, I had to take a class on qualitative methods, and I, you know, in retrospect, I realized that the professor was either lazy or not very knowledgeable. But his whole thing was first day of class, you're gonna you're gonna learn ethnographic methods by finding either a marginalized person or a marginalized space and go and hang out there. That was the directive, nothing else, right? Go and find out what is going on. Like, like we would now call the sink or swim approach, right? I end up hanging out with a group of kids who were you know, smoking weed and, and drinking in another poor neighborhood. Actually, 10 blocks, from where a soccer star recently uh, deceased, Diego Maradona, was uh, born uh, in Villa Fiorito. That's what I was. That's where I did my first ethnographic stint, hanging out with this group. Uh, and I had no. I mean, I. I now I wouldn't. Uh, I would. I would not teach like that. But I would come back and take notes. Uh, I would do recordings. I would, do, and eventually that was my first. Uh, ethnographic project and I, lo- I I just loved and I never until much later I never conceived of another method of course I had to take you know require stats uh, at the university uh, for coursework but I always thought oh this is how you do sociology because the two friends that introduced me to sociology were also ethnographers so I never thought about oh sociology might be something else and what that this sort of first experience of ethnography, where, where you're hanging out close to uh, the birthplace of Maradona, what what were you doing with with these people other than drinking and smoking weed? I don't know if you were participating, but well, what was the project? More, <laughs> you don't I, have to answer that. It was I was trying. I, I, in fact, you know, after um, after the first two or three uh, visits uh, with them. I started thinking, okay, what exactly do I want to find out? 
there were issues of you know uh, addiction there were many other uh, things for example their relationship with the local police i slowly started zooming in something that you know on something that was very much present at the sort of political and intellectual climate of the time which is how do people learn to be citizens uh, again this was the time of you know democracy coming back uh, to argentina so did they know their rights did they not know their rights uh, what kind of citizens were they did they have aspirations for the future i way later i i learned about a book uh, ain't no making it my jay by jake mcleod that did that way much better than i was trying to do back then but that was that was the the idea of 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 the project about you know were they citizens or not? Did they think of themselves as citizens or not? So to, to shift into talking about uh, your dissertation research and first book, which is Poor People's Politics, mm-hmm. um, which is still hugely influential, you know, 20 years, nearly 20 years after it's published, um, you studied uh, Peronist party brokers and clients, right? Now, did, mm-hmm. How did you how did you come to that project? Um, I remember you saying that, that that was actually even related to to your activism. Mm-hmm. It was related to my activism because I've uh, I've always uh, you know I was an activist and I wasn't a, an activist uh, you know uh, a Peronist activist. So I always wonder why were we why were we so unsuccessful in recruiting people to our own cause and why was Peronist so successful that that that's a question that's still you know <laughs> it's still around in my mind but but the but the but the way in which i arrived to the issue of patronage uh, politics had had a more sort of i i always knew as i just said that i was going to conduct um my research was going to be ethnographic uh now fast forward to grad school i'm at the new school I'm taking again classes. I'm reading Habermas and I'm reading Foucault. You know, discussions on civil society were big back then. Um, and on my own, I'm reading someone who was little known at the time at the New School that then became, you know, very uh, influential here in the US, of course. And, and that was the work of Pierre Bourdieu, who I first found at the University of Buenos Aires. Back, I think it was 1994. Uh, a young uh, sociologist comes to the new school uh, uh, to uh, give a talk on boxing. Um, that was Loic uh, Vacant. And uh, I remember I had no interest in, uh, in, in boxing. I had a huge sort of interest in, in, in the work of Pierre Bourdieu. But I remember uh, his, his, the one thing that stuck in my mind was that how you actually find, can find a specific social universe in which you can conduct uh, uh, research on the stuff that interests you, right? And so I was reading on power and on habitus, but I was like hunting for like, where can I actually study these things, uh, right? Where, what, what specific set of relations, it, it was used to call sort of relational setting or a specific social universe in the case of Loic. And, you know, my interest in politics, plus my hunting for this specific social universe, uh, plus my readings on, you know, politics around the world that I was doing uh, at the new school, started thinking, what is this universe of patronage of clientelistic politics that nobody in Argentina uh, had been talking about? Uh, I mean, it's hard to 
convey this, but the word clientelism and patronage politics was nowhere in the political or academic lexicon in Argentina uh, back then. And so I decided, what if, uh, you know, uh, Peronism could be studied in a very different way through the lens of patronage and, and clientelistic uh, politics? I wanted, as a young Argentine academic, the last thing I wanted to study was Peronism. I, you know, I came to the U.S. I said, I, I, I'm tired of everybody studying Peronism. And I hid my head on Peronism, you know, six months, less, you know, two months into my field research. But, uh, but I, I came to that out of interest in the world of, you know, boxing, uh, takes on, on habitus and concerns uh, with the workings of power. It, that it was more a sort of intellectual lineage, and this is not a retrospective sort of reconstruction. It was, I think, it's the closest thing to how actually happened. I remember sitting, you know, with my books and uh, trying to draw something and trying to, you know, circle around. Okay, how do I study this? How where do I find these relationships? And I started thinking about, uh, you know, the people I knew in uh, in Villa Jardín. Villa Paraíso, which is the place I ended up doing fieldwork, because I, I uh, before coming to grad school, I did a short sting as a sort of social worker, uh, trying to recruit, recruit old um, old folks to join uh, a social club. That I was, you know, I was trying to you know, uh, make some money, and so an NGO hired me to do that, and so I got to know that shantytown pretty well out of my work with old folks. Uh, and so I decided I'm going to go there and try to figure out what kind of political relations are there. And just just for our listeners, you, you mentioned that sort of Peronist activism was was more successful than, um, than maybe more traditional activism or some of the the kinds of things you were trying to do. Um, what is Peronism, or what was Peronism, and uh, you know what what meaning did it have for the for the lives of of people in these marginalized communities. You know, the thing is that I mean, I'm not tr- going to try to define Peronism, but it was a you know, it, it's, it was and still is the largest political uh, party uh, in the nation. It had an appeal among uh, the poor, uh, even when you know, many many years after uh, the, you know Peron's government, uh, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't you know. Um, in 1983, it was out of the government. Uh, they didn't. Uh, Peronism did not win the the first elections, the first democratic elections in 1983, but it was still very uh, popular, and people would uh, would vote uh, for them, even if you know the candidate was a crook, even if the candidate's policies were not progressive. They would still, you know, some of them, not all of them, would still. And I was trying to understand the the still the appeal. Uh, of, of Peronism in in poor people's politics, I end up, you know, uh, trying to think through what it still what Peronism still means uh, for poor uh, marginalized people. It means a claim a claim for uh, dignity, for recognition, along the lines that you know m- many years before me was uh, highlighted by Daniel James in in his wonderful history of Peronism. But I was trying to uh, figure out, okay, you know, why is what kind of I ended up uh, honing on the issue of, of of problem solving. What kind of problems Peronism is addressing and solving for 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 these people? And I ended up doing 
uh, my research exactly on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to shift gears a little bit uh, at this juncture and uh, say that, you know, as in your trajectory as an ethnographer, you've done research in a bunch of different ways, um, from poor people's politics uh, to, say, patients of the state where you hired research assistants, um, to collaborative works with people, uh, and even with community insiders in harm's way and in uh, Flammable. Uh, mm-hmm. to your latest book with uh, Katie Sobering, who was a student of yours. So mm-hmm. we were just curious about these different models for ethnographic research and uh, why the changes in the models. Um, and if you could say a little bit about how it was to collaborate um, in terms of, you know, doing eth- ethnography. You know, if if subjects could convey the reasons why we do things, <laughs> I always say, <laughs> Nobody would need ethnographers. And, and, and I'm probably not the best informant on why, um, on, on, on how, how these things uh, actually were decided. I, and, 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 and that's why, among other things, I, I don't go around uh, trying to come up with a, a name for what I do. Uh, you know, uh, these days there are so many. Uh, names and so many qualifiers for ethnographer. Every ethnographer feels the need of coming up with a name for what they do. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm more traditional or maybe I am a little bit more knowledgeable on the history of ethnography and anthrop- in anthropology and sociology to know that those names have been around for a while uh, and now we are sometimes reinventing the wheel. But going back to your, uh, to your question, uh, poor people's politics was, in that sense, traditional uh, ethnography. I did it uh, uh, on my own. Then I did something more uh, along the lines in contentious lives, in in-depth interviews and oral uh, histories. And then I did some in-depth interviews and uh, statistical work for the Gray Zone. I always, my heart, as I said before, my heart was always uh, in ethnography, but I also had to recognize the fact that I had to spend more time uh, here, away from the field, from domestic responsibilities, I had two uh, kids. We had two kids. Um, to professional responsibilities, I had to, you know, be uh, here, you know, teaching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, prevented me from like I'm going to spend a year and a half in the field again, as I did uh, uh, with poor people's politics. Still, I toyed with the idea I'm going to do this. I don't know how. And in, in the case of Flammable, I started doing solo field work. And a week into uh, that field research, is some of the one of the, my sort of informants, it wasn't my quote unquote informant, it was someone that everybody sort of recognized you had to talk to this person because he's the president of the neighborhood association. So I start talking with him. First thing he mentions is, Do you know Deborah? And I said, No, I don't. Oh, She's an anthropologist. She lives here. My first reaction was like, damn, there's someone actually who moved into the neighborhood and is doing the real thing, right? Doing real anthropological work. It wasn't the case. It was like Deborah was born and raised there. She was teaching English classes. She was finishing her degree in anthropology. And and again, I I don't want to get too sort of causal on this because I don't really know what prompted me to start this collaboration. But I had, back then, I had sort of the privileges of of time and that come with tenure. And so I said, let's start this. I didn't know there was a name 
quote-unquote for, between quotes, native anthropology. I didn't know that. I thought, I'm not going to do this alone. There's someone who is interested in this. We started this conversation and we agree, whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it together. It took longer than expected. I didn't have a, a clear plan. I, I do believe that, you know, as, as Henry Petrosky says, form follows failure. And so I'm, I'm sure we failed a, a, a zillion times. What ended up being is I think someone can call it a model, uh, a model, you know, for doing collaborative uh, work. But I, I don't want to, uh, A, put that name or I don't want to say, oh, people should be doing that. It just so happened that I found someone uh, and she found me and we found each other that we could work uh, together. Then I decided, okay, if I want to keep doing it, ethnographic work because I do trust ethnographic data. I do trust, you know, uh, looking at what people do and what people say and what people say in relationship to what they do. Another silly of those silly of those dichotomies that people make up about, you know, what they say and what they do and what do we trust. This, you know, anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm now sounding like a cranky old person, but, um, <laughs> but, but what I, what I, uh, th- thought is like okay, you know, if I did, if I c- was able to pull this off with Deborah, I'm gonna try this uh, again. I-, I knew someone from my activist days who was working in another poor neighborhood, and we ended up doing it in harm's way. So um, uh, things happen. Uh, you know, I think it was um, uh, Z- um, Zora Hurston who who said, uh, you know. Uh, that research was curiosity formalized. Uh, I think it was, you know, I'm, I'm now reading uh, this wonderful book, Gods of the Upper Air, which is the history of uh, cultural anthropology in the U.S. and the Boas uh, Circle. And I, I'm pretty sure it was her who, who said that, you know, research was curiosity formalized. I, I was curious about the issues of the environment and or violence. And I said, okay, how do I, how do I go about finding more about this? Let's team up. Uh, and I wasn't concerned about, oh, how how will authorship or primary informantship would look like. Uh, I do know that, you know, in some other times, Deborah would not have been the co-author. She would have been acknowledged as a primary informant and move on. Uh, and I don't want to claim, oh, I'm a good person. Like, with, no, it just happened that, you know, I, you know, I established these relationships and I cannot conceive of another way of doing these things. So I, I, I think this is a really interesting uh, point because, you know, your first project that you talked a little bit about, that's like very much the the dominant way we think of ethnography, right? Like the mm-hmm. lone wolf in the fields alone, uh, you know, going out each day. This, you know, what I do, what Sneha does. Um, I... Can, can you talk a little bit more about like what the process was when you were working with um, with Deborah and Flammable or in in harm's way? Um, like how is th- these are people who actually lived in the area and you're you're in an American university, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in mm-hmm. Texas at, by that point, I think. Um, mm-hmm. What you know is this? Are you talking a lot on phone? Are you going and visiting? Are your collaborators sending you field notes? Are you deciding together what to do? How did, how did that work? 
it was on the nuts and bolts. It, it, they were they were quite different. Um, inflammable. I was still at, at Stony Brook. Uh, this is there was a time before WhatsApp, and there was a time before all these ways of communicating that that we had now. So we would do this uh, via email. I I, I started. I would go and stay. You know go there for a month, visit, get the lay of the land. And so we started thinking, okay, Deborah, why don't we, why don't you keep a, a journal of your own uh, activities in the neighborhood? Let's, let's try to f- start thinking about an interview uh, protocol. Okay, here is an interview Deborah will send me via email. What do you think about that? Why don't we ask this? And we would go back and forth and I would read her diary and then uh, I would, uh, she would read the diary to me when I visit uh, with uh, with her at her home. You know, six months uh, later, it was again. You know, if I had to write this as a model for doing ethnography, I would probably come up with like a much more organized uh, and put some order in in what was kind at the time of chaotic. And let's try this, or why don't you try this? You know, for me, it is obvious not to ask people why they do things. Uh, for me, it's it's a question that I I try in my teaching to tell students don't do that, uh, but then I do it when I'm interviewing someone. And Deborah did that and said, "So Deborah, why don't you try this, or why don't you try this other thing?" The same thing with the photographs. We we did a we did an ethnography workshop. Her sister is a photographer, and so say why do, why don't your sister teaches these kids the basics of photography and we asked them to portray what they like and what they don't like about the neighborhood. I didn't have a theory. I mean, then I read, oh, Bourdieu wrote about diagrammatic representations of space through photography. And there's a long lineage of, you know, visual photography. I would be lying here if I say, oh, I had a clear idea of what visual sociology was. And I I tried to implement that. I, as a funny anecdote, I, I I was back then the editor of Qualitative Sociology, and Doug Massey submitted an essay based on photography. And I was like, and, and this was a photography taken by immigrants on what they what they think um, uh, the U.S. is. And I was like, I'm doing the same thing in Flammable. And I actually, you know, sent him a note saying, you would think I'm stealing your ideas, but we're doing the same thing in Flammable. So... Uh, there was a lot of, um, again, I could formalize this and get, you should do this, you should, the, the shoots and shouldn't do it. But at the time, it was, it was, let's say, you know, theoretically informed uh, intuition, right? I want to get at images of space. I want, we want to do, remember one thing, uh, um, that the advantage of Deborah doing the interviews is that I still have the uh, transcriptions uh, in my office, of course. The level of intimacy uh, that that you get talking with your friends and neighbors is something that you know even the best ethnographers struggle to uh, to get at. That presents a problem: is that every interview was three, four, five times longer than I'm used to uh, listen and and code, right? But it has the advantages of like, oh, there is a gem of, you know, there's an insight here that I would not have gotten uh, otherwise. So um, at some point I said, okay, Deborah, let's only ask about this or that. What do you think of this or that? And then the collaboration in the analysis and the writing was also a back and forth. 
I was, I'm not ashamed to say, I was very much wedded to the idea that there was something, I still have a file with that title in my computer. There was something called Toxic Doxa, right? I, I was married to this idea that there has to be some sort of toxic adjustment to the environment. And Deborah would fight against me. It's like, there's no doxa here. I, the first thing she would say, what exactly do you mean by doxa, right? Okay, why don't you read this, Deborah? So she would read it and said, there, there's not, I, this is not coming out of the interviews. This idea of, you know, theoretically driven ethnography sometimes has the, the issues like you're trying to fit something that the data is not, is not responding to, is not, you, you can, I, I do believe in constructing an object and producing data, but sometimes, you know, in the interviews, it doesn't come like, oh, this is taken for granted. And Deborah would say, that's the other thing, and I'm going to stop here, but that's the other thing, is that when you work alone and, you know, in, in your writing of ethnography, you can, you can actually get away with a lot of things that if you're working with someone from the neighborhood, you, you want, because Deborah would not allow, say, you're not saying that. This is not, and, and so, um, uh, you know, Jack Katz has this idea that informants contest, contest your interpretations of the data, that is absolutely true. But it's also true that when you have, you know, someone from the community writing with you, they would contest even before as you're thinking, not as you're writing. Mm -hmm. Not when you, after you write it. That's really, really interesting. And uh, as I'm sure Alex and I are both now writing up our own uh, ethnographies and there is this tendency to be so attached to a theoretical framework or like you want to say the snappy, you know, mm -hmm. some snappy phrase, but it's not actually uh, bearing out in the data. So it's good to know that you've also had to think through this. So, oh, yeah, abso oh, absolutely. <laughs> it happens. Uh, it happens all the time that you, you, you do start with this uh, very strong idea and, and even, even, you move on with a strong idea and then you write a paragraph that you, you it sounds wonderful and it makes perfect logical sense. But then, you know, uh, the data are, I, I'll tell you something different, not the data as something totally outside of your own construction. I'm saying uh, your, your, you know, your field diary, the, the, the voice of your informants and transcription. Uh, so, I mean, some some basic thing, you know, all the theories about violence, like oh, ex exposition to violence, exposure to violence, say, ends up being, you know, end up familiarizing yourself to violence. You take for granted. Well, if people talk endlessly about violence, that's an indication that they're not. It's not taken for granted. So, uh, anyway, um, yeah, my my reaction to that is I'm I'm actually thrilled that there, that there isn't someone holding me accountable in that way. Um, <laughs> you do have more freedom. You do have more freedom. That that is that that is absolutely true. I I I had not fights, but and it was it was fun. And again, when you have the privilege of not have not having the pressure to publish uh, or to send something out uh, immediately, you you can you enjoy those moments in which you're like uh, someone is telling you, but Javier, this is not what I'm seeing. Uh, and I say, well, but this is what the literature uh, tells you what you should be seeing. Well, I'm not seeing that. So, uh, and that, those are, I mean, this is, for me at least, this is the fun part. I know it creates a lot of anxiety, of course, 
but when you are when you are over certain you know thresholds like okay i i have time and i'm going to think through this right so I, I wanted to to pivot to i mean I, I think it's really interesting the way you describe sort of that model of research which developed um maybe somewhat accidentally but it, it uh, i think it's really valuable sort of to, to hear how that worked um but it, a different model in a different book, uh, Patients of the State, which is a solo authored book, but uh, I think you used paid research assistants. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And, and how did that, I mean, just, just quickly, it's, it's an ethnography of sort of waiting in these Buenos Aires welfare offices that um, the, the many of the poor are, are sort of going to, to, to get needed resources and, and they end up just having to wait indefinitely. Um, and I, I think the argument is really fascinating. Um, but how did you, how, how did that work? I mean, how much, I guess one question I have is, you know, how much did you, how, how did you come up with that idea without actually, were, were you there first observing? And then decide it happened, to hire it's, or, or, Yeah. Um. When we were finishing uh, Flammable, I, I vividly remember being, um, and I think I wrote about this somewhere, and I can't remember where, but um, I was, I, we were having lunch at Deborah's house, and uh, out you know, from the kitchen comes the mom of Deborah, sort of pretending she was an older lady than she was, uh, you know, and 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 walking on a cane that she didn't was she was not walking on a cane, and she starts saying like in an old frail voice, "We're gonna be relocated from flammable," like making fun of the fact that uh, you know they've they've always been waiting for relocation and nothing happened, and that was one of those you know moments of uh, Lily King, the novelist, would call it euphoria, like this euphoric moment in which like, like, what is going on here? What is this, what is this waiting about? Right. I started rereading uh, the interviews and there were a lot of moments in Flammel. There were a lot of moments in which people were like, we're waiting for this. We're waiting for that. Something will happen. And I started thinking about this, this waiting uh, as, as, the, as the experience that marginalized. Uh, and I started thinking, maybe this is not just only about flammable. And I mean, I'm not, I don't have the mind of, oh, I'm going to test this theory. I'm going to create this model. It's like, well, I start asking friends who are like uh, in Argentina, it's like, where, where do people wait? And I remember uh, Sheila Wilker, who is now a, a pollster and she's very successful and very good at what she does. Like, you know, you had to try the welfare office. And then someone, another friend, end up being, you know, Agustin, who is from Ecuador, but who's studying in Argentina sociology, says, you know, the people, the line where people wait for their IDs. And I created this, like, and I'm going to revisit Flamel. I create this, okay, where are these, again, specific social universes where people had to wait? Now, I had no set of uh, sort of theoretical tools to think about time. And so what I did is, as I was thinking, and in this, you know, may, it's not like a model. It's, I think this is how ethnographers work. As I'm thinking about a design, I start gathering work on time and waiting. Of course, 
I reread with that idea Pascalian Meditations, the last chapter, which is about that. In Pascalian Meditations, um, Bourdieu uses the work of Kafka uh, to think about time. I start reading Kafka. My wife says, you're thinking about waiting? Of course you have to read because she, she knows a lot about Garcia Marquez. You have to wait. Nobody writes to the coronal because it's all about waiting. And then I start gathering whatever came to my you know, novels, social theory. I went back to reading, um, what was it, Schwartz and Cuse, E.P. Thompson on the meaning of the clock. And I start creating, as much as ethnographers create their data, they also create their uh, their library. And I created a little library that since then had been disassembled for some other project on time and waiting. And so for a while, that was the only thing I was reading on time and waiting. And you start seeing when you're doing the interviews, you start paying attention and observations. And, and this is, I did uh, hire people because there was no way, this was the year I was transitioning I think, yes, they were, was transitioned, the two years I was transitioned from Stony Brook to UT. Um, so um, I, uh, I, uh, I, 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 I talked to my friends, I, I, I hired research assistants, and started thinking about uh, questions and uh, observation protocols to find out what wa waiting uh, did and meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Um... This is really interesting, all of this, and uh, it's lovely to hear talk, you talk about your your work because I can almost sense like the ethnographic enthusiasm, you know, and mm. it's very relatable. Um, but I was actually curious about, uh, you know, you've been an ethnographer for a couple of decades and you've published so many books and articles, but um, we were wondering if you could tell us a story from your fieldwork, whether it's uh, embarrassing, funny, sad, exciting, but one that's sort of slipped through the cracks or one that you've never really shared at least publicly and you know we would we would love to hear that if you wanted to share with us um oh i have many embarrassing moments uh um <laughs> one of them i mean i just mentioned in passing one of them um i i i had inflammable i had this concern as to okay this is a truly miserable place and i knew from reading newspapers that um, that a group of neighborhoods, uh, neighbors were organizing a squatter settlement uh, and they were saying, we're leaving flammable because nobody can live here. And so I, at the moment I thought this is, this is a perfect natural experiment. You know, why are people leaving and why are people staying? If the conditions are the same, this is perfect for someone who is uh, interested in social movements, why it's happened. And I had this really silly idea of asking them straight directly, why are you not leaving? And, and people would look at me like, what kind of dumb question is that from an old, uh, bold guy? As I learned, I was in, uh, in Flammable when I knock at the door and the little kid comes out of the, in, in the patio and says, Mom, there's a bold guy here. I'm like, this is the first time someone called it in my face. But, but then I ask, why are you not leaving? And, and this, is, this is the kind of thing that, you know, I keep telling students, one thing is are your questions, the other thing is the question that you ask. Because then, then you get all these pre-constructed, you know, uh, responses uh, or blank uh, stares. And but but a more sort of embarrassing, but sort of deeper uh, thing that happened is when I was doing um, 
and again, I don't think I ever said this, uh, at least in uh, sort of public. Um, I was doing my uh, sort of long oral histories, but also a little bit of ethnographic observations here and there for contentious lives. Uh, I was not at all prepared uh, to, I, I was trying to reconstruct the history of the story of these two women's participation in contentious uh, episodes. And they start telling me stories of domestic abuse and violence. And I had no clue. I honestly had no no idea of how to react to what I was listening, what to say. I felt uh, I, you know, I wasn't trained uh, in that. I wasn't. Uh, it's not that I was not aware that there was a problem. I wasn't expecting. It came totally out. Uh, and then not only I, I, a, I was able to navigate that, but then when I had the stories and I was confronting with just the paper on the stories, I had no tools to interpret that, and I had to. I had to really struggle uh, to intellectually also and emotionally to make sense uh, of it all. And, and, you know, when you read the, I think you still read the book and says, oh, this, this makes sense. But it was, it was agonizing to me. It's like, I, I, I had no idea how to, uh, how to handle this, how to interpret this how to write about this. Do I have any right to write about this? Um, it was also the first time that I knew that the, the two women were going to read what I had to write. And so it was a back and forth between my own interpretations and what they would think my, my interpretations would say about what they went through. So it was, it was really, really, really uh, uh, hard. And again, um, you know, years later comes all this, you know, concern with positionality and reflexivity that I do respect that, but this is not the first time that people have been thinking and struggling over this. So, uh, um, so yeah. And then I had many other embarrassing moments in which, you know, I was almost mugged and through humor and, and being scared, uh, I, I managed to <laughs> navigate that too, but that that's... The, yeah. Uh, I mean, you mentioned this briefly in passing, so I want to kind of um, go back to it. But you said something about teaching and the kinds of advice you give students when you're teaching uh, ethnographic mm -hmm. methods, I assume. Um, I was curious to know what are some of the texts that you like to teach with and why mm -hmm. these texts in particular? You know, th this is another, uh, not funny anecdote, but um, I, I've been teaching uh, readings in ethnography, both, you know, uh, just uh, the, the sort of the foundations of, of ethnography, but also the sort of nuts and bolts for ethnography for a long time and for more than a decade. And I never actually uh, thought about formalizing how I, I taught until I, I asked, uh, uh, Richard Osejo asked me uh, if I would you know, contribute a piece on teaching ethnography. And my first reaction was, there's no way I'm going to write more than a page uh, about this. But, uh, you know, very aware of my own limitations of, you know, you know formalizing and, 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 and putting, you know, in paper what I, how I thought uh, ethnography should be uh, taught. Um, I asked Katie Jensen, uh, now at Wisconsin, if, if she thought it was a good idea, like, we would talk and uh, and and we can collaborate in a paper on, on teaching 
uh, ethnography. And the paper was just uh, published. I think it's a great paper. She is the first uh, author uh, because, as you can sense, I'm not very sort of systematic and organized in presenting my ideas. That's how I. That's how my mind works. Uh, so I always admire Chuck Tilly because he would like he would like point one, point two, point three, very organized, very clear. I I, I wish I could be like that. But going back now to your uh, question, I choose, and I'm now in the process of doing exactly that, of choosing eight or nine uh, uh, ethnographies that illustrate uh, the warrants, the puzzles, the the balance between observational data, data on interview data, what is a good, you know, again, puzzle or, uh, or enigma. Are they, are these ethnographies uh, capturing well the native point of view? How's the narrative like? You know, a set of questions. I think there's five or six questions that are right up on the syllabus. And we ask, I ask the students to ask the same questions over and over again to eight or nine ethnographic texts. Uh, and so I include, you know, some now classics like Death Without Weeping or In Search of Respect. But then we move on to, let's say, uh, Matt Desmond on the Fireline. Or um, I am now including Life Exposed by Adriana Petrina. Or um, this fabulous uh, book on uh, African uh, doctors. Uh, I have it right here. Uh, it's called A Heart for the Work by Claire Wendland. Uh, Journeys through an African medical school. Um, I also include Pedigree by Lauren Rivera. Uh, I, I mean, the list goes uh, uh, on and on, and I always had to... Uh, uh, Farin Parvez uh, on Islam in France. It's a... It's a, it's a Sort of mix of uh, of things in which you know the, the the students are asked to ask the same question over and over again. They can disagree about the virtues of that particular ethnography, but by the end of the class, they know that a good ethnography has to have at least one warrant, clear puzzle, an enigma, trying to capture the point of view and how people think and feel, some sort of balance between the kind of evidence that is presenting. That that's that's how the, the idea is. I don't like to teach ethnography through the process of sink or swim. The, 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 the one that, the one, how, how I learned to do ethnography, I don't think I would advise that. Uh, so I think the whole idea of a class on ethnography is th that the moment of the construction of an ethnographic object is the most important one. Way more than when you actually, you know, the, the specific operations that you do in the field because they're actually wedded to that construction of the object. So and, and I try to use really what I think are exemplary texts on on how you actually do that. See, can I take this class? It sounds excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say that it I've sounds probably, more I sounds more read... promising that I'm actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds great. It sounds uh, like a, I was actually taking notes of the books that you were mentioning to sort of uh, pick up after this. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I've I've read the article that that you and Katie wrote, um, Katie Jensen, and I I think we can recommend that to our listeners who are interested in in teaching ethnography as well. That it is a really interesting reflection uh, on exactly what you're talking about. Um, to to go back to actually writing ethnography, um, and maybe for for sort of a last question is that I think uh, 
both Sneha and I are really interested in in sort of creative ways of finding data and presenting data uh, within ethnography. And that one thing we appreciate about your work is that you um, you draw on novels and you know back to patients of the state in particular. There's a there's a lengthy analysis of the the trial by Kafka. Um, mm-hmm. and actually, you use uh, fictional work in in teaching as well even in the, the class that, that you mentioned, that I've had the pleasure of taking, you, um, you use a story by uh, Borges on Funes, mm-hmm. man with an amazing memory, but who you know, struggles to focus in on things. And I think you've used that in your writing as well. Um, so mm-hmm. just to be provocative for a moment, um, why, why should we consider novels or fictional works legitimate evidence uh, for a book or for an article, um, and, and why did you why did you make those choices? You know, I mean, there there's no one answer, right? I mean, the um, one thing is a I, I love reading uh, fiction. I when I was writing my uh, dissertation, I would spend you know a few hours uh, reading. I remember back uh, back then. This is 1997. I was really into Paul Auster, and I would read that. And I recommend uh, students to read fiction because that's the best way. Reading is the best way of uh, learning how to write, right? And so I have a soft uh, spot for uh, for fiction, not only because I'm married to someone who writes uh, fiction and she's a literary critique, but also because I, I actually like, I, I'm not, and, but I do think that, again, going back to uh, Zora uh, Hurston, uh, she used to call, and she was one of the sort of anthropologists from the Boas uh, Circle. And again, this is because I'm just rereading God, God, uh, Gods of the Upper Air. She, co- she used to call what she did literary uh, science. Um, you know, um, and, and she was doing ethnography, right? And... and uh, literature has an insight on you know on human experience and it's i mean i I don't use that as ethnographic evidence i use it as a way of sensitizing me to understand uh, things i i i honestly think and i would say you know bourdieu in in masculine domination uses wolf and in Pascalian Meditations uses uh, kafka as insights into the experience of a what being a a woman uh, feels like and be what what the experience of waiting uh, feels like and then you confront that with um ethnographic uh, evidence um, um and and i think it makes for a better text i i also going back to what i said before i also think that I, maybe it is my own sort of limitations because a English is not my uh, first language, and now I don't write well in English and I don't write well in Spanish. So I always struggle to ways in which you know you, you can present your arguments uh, better. And I had to, and I'm not ashamed to say, I had to work harder. I do read uh, fiction for uh, for fun and for for sort of enrichment, but I'm also reading because I know that. I get into the rhythm of writing better 
when I'm really steep into that, if I go, it happens all the time. I go to Argentina a few months, I stop reading in English, and then I come back, and I had to struggle. I, I'm not a natural for language. I admire, I have friends who can speak three or four languages with ease, you know. I'm not ashamed, you know, he's a good friend of mine, ethnographer Dennis Rogers, who goes, you know, between French, Spanish, and English. And he's like, how does he do this? And he's a wonderful writer too. And it's like, God, I wish uh, I could, you know, and, and this, I would not say this in public, but when, uh, but when some of my students complain about I'm having difficulty in writing and they're English speakers, I look at them like, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> what we go through. So uh, maybe I have a short fuse uh, for, you know, I have low, low sort of patience and tolerance for complaints about I'm struggling with the writing. Like, really? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I completely, uh, like, as you were speaking, I was actually thinking about the time that I was writing my dissertation and all I read were novels alongside. And I probably, mm. again, shouldn't be admitting to this because I was supposed to be reading like sociological theory or something. But honestly, like 90% of my reading time was spent with novels because again, I was like so self-conscious that it's not my first language and I need to construct these elegant sentences. Yes. And, yeah. And, and, you know, and uh, Sneha, I think, and, and Alex, I think we would agree that you wouldn't learn how to uh, write well only reading sociology, only reading... <laughs> no, uh, never. <laughs> let's go from anthropologists who these days tend to write in a more and more obscure ways. Mm-hmm. I, you know, you would see, I, I fantasize, and I still do, about writing like, whatever you think about the book, it doesn't, I mean, we, we would agree that Catherine Booth's Behind the Beautiful Forevers is a wonderful read. And I was like, I want to write like her. And I actually... If you read in harm's way, you'll see that the first pages, or, or at least the first pages of one of the chapters, are tried, are, are trying me and Fernanda as nonfiction writers. I cannot sustain that for more than three pages. I go back to the sociological writing, which is a yeah. lazier writing, I think. It doesn't you know, require much of our imagination. Anyway. Yeah, I, I absolutely this has agree. been... I love ethnography that reads yeah. more like a novel. Um, yeah, I think that's that's mm. a that's a great message that we should all be reading novels. Yeah, um, and you know, there's so much of what you said today was so relatable, and I'm sure it's going to strike a lot of resonance amongst our listeners. And thank you for sharing so candidly. I really really enjoyed this conversation and uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for taking time out. I know that you're busy and I know that you're giving a talk a few hours after this. Yes. So <laughs> this is particularly appreciated that you took time out today. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. you for, yeah, for having great. me. Thank you for having me here. Really. It was, it was, it was fun to uh, set in sort of semi-public things I'd never dare to say. <laughs> in a lecture thank you there were were a few points where you you said this is not something i would say publicly and i was wondering if i should remind you that we were recording a podcast Um, no i know it's fine it's fine it was we we appreciate your honesty yeah thank you all right take care javier uh, with whatever you're doing now and uh, all the best for uh, for yet another quarter of teaching and uh, teaching ethnographic methods, I suppose, in a time when you can't actually do ethnography outside the way one is perhaps used to doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Thanks, Alex and Neha. Yeah, thank you, Javier.
Thank you.